from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to already the last CER podcast of 2021. My name is Megan Ferrando. I'm this year's Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow. For this special end of year episode, no less than eight of our CER experts are going to review the year with us and look ahead to 2022. We're going to look at the European Union's past year from the perspectives of climate action, transatlantic relationship and other areas that our researchers specialize in. Let's start with Camino Mortera Martinez, who brings us up to speed on the rule of law. Camino, 2021 has been a bumpy year for the rule of law in Europe. Why is that? So the role over compliance with European Union values, particularly the rule of law, has been brewing between Hungary and Poland on the one side and the Brussels institutions on the other since 2014. But this year has been wild. In December 2020, the European Union passed a law, which has a horrible name, the conditionality mechanism, that would stop EU payments to countries that do not respect the rule of law. Now, the Commission has not used this law yet because EU governments promised Poland and Hungary that the law would be frozen until the European Court of Justice had had the time to review it. But to put pressure on Poland and Hungary, the Commission has instead delayed the release of the European Union's post-pandemic recovery funds, which is separate from the general EU budgets, to either Warsaw or Budapest over concerns of generalized corruption and a captured judiciary. Over the past 12 months, the European Court of Justice has ruled repeatedly that the current Polish government has breached EU law with its judicial reform, and the current Polish government has also repeatedly refused to comply with court's rulings. The standoff really came to a head in October when the Polish Constitutional Tribunal ruled that parts of the European Union treaties were incompatible with the Polish constitution, sparking fears of a polexit. What do you think then will happen in 2022? Will there be a polexit? Right, so I think that the rule of law will still dominate headlines in the next few months for three reasons. The first one is because the European Court of Justice is likely to rule on Poland and Hungary's challenge to the conditionality mechanism in the first part of the year. Now, my prediction is that the courts will say that the law is compatible with EU treaties and that the Commission will start using it as soon as the court's ruling is out. Secondly, I think a positive ruling over the conditionality mechanism will give even more ground to the Commission's decision to delay the release of the post-pandemic recovery funds to Budapest and Warsaw. And this will, in turn, complicate life at home for both Orban and Morawiecki, the former because to stay in power, he really relies on a network of cronies who are partially paid with European Union funds, funnily enough, and the latter because his promise to modernize the country with a new Polish deal, a Polish New Deal, 
which should be mostly funded with European Union money. So as a result, and this is the third and final reason why I think the rule of law role will not go away anytime soon, both Orban and Morawiecki are likely to bite back and double down on their challenge to Europe to gather support at home. Orban is facing elections in the spring and Morawiecki is facing the growing influence of his justice minister, Eurosceptic Party, United Poland. My guess is they will both escalate the anti-Brussels rhetoric before they are, quote unquote, forced by Brussels to give up so that the post-pandemic money can start to flow before they risk losing power. So for this reason, I do not think there will, there will be a hung exit and nor will there be a poll exit unless Morawiecki miscalculates and well, where have we heard that before? I see. And so against this background, is there a, a New Year's wish you would have for the EU in 2022? Yes. So my wish for 2022 is that no European Union government, north or south, east or west, feels that it can tell judges what to think or that it can tell women what to do. Thank you very much. Next up, we have Zach Myers. So, Zach, um, could you tell us what were for competition and tech regulations, the highlights of 2021? And what do you think we can expect in that area in 2022? Thanks, Megan. It's good to chat. Um, I think 2021 will be known as the year that Europe really started to make headway in tackling the problems of big tech. There's been two pieces of legislation which haven't quite been finalised at the end of 2021, but are very much along the way there. The first is the Digital Markets Act, and that's a piece of legislation that aims to stop big tech platforms from continuing to dominate their markets and to unfairly use their power to expand into new markets. And so um, just today, Parliament um, ha has agreed on the Digital Markets Act, and so that will be going into um, negotiations with, um, with the Council and with the Commission and should be finished in the next couple of months. And then there's the Digital Services Act, which aims to tackle illegal content and disinformation and misinformation online. So trying to make sure that platforms are more transparent and accountable and predictable. So that's running a little bit behind the DMA, but it's still moving pretty quickly. And France is very keen in particular to get that done in the first couple of months of next year. There's lots of other um, proposals and initiatives that are being progressed across 2021 as well. So there's been plenty of competition investigations by the commission and also by different EU member states. Um, tackling some of the problems of big tech. Um, Google lost its appeal in the Google Shopping case just a couple of weeks ago, uh, which showed that anti-competitive conduct can include when you preference your own products. Um, that is starting to tackle gig economy platforms like Uber. And they've proposed a Artificial Intelligence Act, which um, will likely progress next year, but the commission has made a really good start with, with this proposal. Um, at the same time, just looking briefly at the UK, um, the competition authority there banned its first big tech merger, which is really a, a milestone because very few of these acquisitions by big tech companies have ever been stopped before. That was the Giphy Facebook case. And the UK is also moving ahead to set up its own regime, which would be a lot like the Digital Markets Act. So I think we should expect all of these initiatives to keep going and be finalised and started to, to be bedded in in 2022. And so I would expect that we'll hear lots of worries from big tech once they have to start making changes and implementing these new rules. Uh, the other thing that's that's um, been very prominent in 2021 is the EU's efforts to be more proactive in promoting its own digital sector. 
So there's really been a shift towards kind of the typical French position of trying to actively back companies and sectors where the EU thinks that it can succeed globally. There's kind of been two strategies here. One's to identify and address weaknesses in supply chains. And that's obviously been impacted by the computer chip crisis um, where production's really slowed and that's hindered a lot of European companies. And then secondly, there's efforts by the EU to try to onshore a lot of this manufacturing and production itself. So uh, I think that this is going to be a lot more difficult than what the EU is trying to achieve by regulating. So supply chains are pretty complex and it's not necessarily a better solution for the EU to just move production from um, one point to another. You know, you're simply moving the supply chain vulnerabilities without solving them. Um, but there has been some good news. So European tech startups are succeeding more now than they ever have in the past and they're attracting more and more venture capital. So, um, you know, if that trend succeeds, then we might actually see more and more companies being able to take advantage of the Digital Markets Act um, and, and starting to, to grow and succeed globally um, and hopefully, you know, even to um, com- compete against, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. All right. Much to look forward to then. Then let me ask you as well. Do you have a New Year's wish for the EU? Yeah, I think that uh, the EU needs to learn to say no. Um, I think that they need to be ruthless about prioritizing. There's a lot of competition problems and other types of problems in digital markets around you know, privacy, the dominance of a couple of players. And it is tempting for the EU to try to fix everything at once and also to try to compete with the US and China in every field imaginable. And so I think the EU needs to be realistic about what it can achieve and try to develop tech leadership in just a few strategic areas where it's the best place to to lead the world. And I think that will be a better strategy than trying to do everything at once. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you very much. And next up, we have John Springford. John, so my question to you, if uh, we look at Britain's exit from the single market and the customs union, has it gone worse or better than you had anticipated? Uh, well, about the same in one way uh, and worse in another. So on the about the same, um, back in 2014, uh, I put together a, a gravity model, uh, which is perhaps too boring to go to go into in detail. But it, it, but it found that goods trade between the UK and the EU was about 55% higher uh, as a result of EU membership. Um, and if you do various jujitsu to transla- translate that into a fall in total trade, it's about 16%. Um, so we would expect Britain, if it left the single market back in 2014, that we'd see about a 16% fall in total trade. Um, now we've had a, a year of Brexit, we can evaluate the costs. I've done a different type of model. I've been running it monthly since January uh, with a, a bit of a hiatus over summer because I was boring myself a bit. Uh, it shows a big drop off in January, the, the model, then a recovery. And then since March, it's been showing a hit to goods trade of between 11 and 16% a month, um, which is, you know, around what we expected with our gravity models before the vote to leave the EU. And um, because it's been, that gap's been going on since March, it's pretty permanent. And so the gravity models are about right. Um, Final point on that is just that these gravity models are the way that we try and work out what forecasts, what the hit to, to, the overall economy, GDP will be from Brexit. Um, and they're about, uh, so far, the hit to hit to trade translates, according to these models, into a hit 
to national income to GDP of around four or five percent. Um, and the Office of Budget Responsibility has had asked me to update my model for their uh, quarterly economic outlook back in October, and they thought that the uh, the what the estimate said meant that they had no reason to think that their hit from Brexit, which is about four or five percent, they had no reason to think that they should change it. Uh, so that's like how it's about the same in one way. In terms of it being worse, um, we didn't think the government was going to go for single market exit in the midst of a pandemic, but they did it anyway, and you know we warned against it. Um, but but what I got wrong, I think, was thinking that Brexit would mean exporting businesses would fire people, and they'd add to the unemployment rolls that were already pretty big because of the pandemic. And the opposite has been the case. We've seen big labour shortages, um, and Brexit's interacted with that in a pretty nasty way. It's made it a lot worse because lots of EU citizens went home in the pandemic, particularly in 2020. Um, so they've added to the labour shortages that we've seen. Um, and it's also harder to import stuff from abroad to satisfy consumer demand. You know, you can substitute imports um, and bring in goods rather than make them yourselves. But Brexit has made that harder, too. So the conclusion, I think, and um, the way in which Brexit has turned out worse than I thought um, is that Brexit has made it much harder for the UK economy to res respond to shocks. OK, thanks. I feel like there's a lot of New Year's wishes that could be hidden in there. <laughs> if you could pick one, what would it be? Well, my wish for 2022 has nothing to do with Brexit because I just see it as a, something that's just going to happen. And, you know, maybe we'll be able to turn around some of the worst of the costs over time, but um, certainly not for a few years. My wishes for 2022 are about COVID and I hope it becomes endemic and um, either because of immunity, meaning symptoms are generally milder, milder or the virus evolves so that the disease becomes less severe. What I really want is for it to become as bad as flu um and then you know we can get on with our lives and i just say that flu is bad enough given the fact that it kills millions of people annually um but at least it's something which is reasonably manageable very true thank you elizabetta climate action and the energy transitions have been all over the news in 2021 so can you walk us through uh what have been according to you the key developments uh, in this area and also what we can expect next year. Yes, thank you, Megan. I'd say, you know, on the domestic side, a very big deal has been the EU legally committing to carbon neutrality by 2050 with the European climate law. And also the EU charted the way to meet these more ambitious, now legally binding emission reduction goals. Uh, and it did so with a vast set of policy proposals called the Fit for 55 package, another slightly awkwardly named one. But so this, this set of proposals puts carbon pricing at the center of EU climate policy uh, with a larger role for uh, the emission trading scheme. And now carbon pricing is an important tool to make polluters pay uh, for their emissions, but it also means that in the short term, uh, during the transition to a low carbon energy system, lower income households are going to face a greater burden as carbon pricing uh, will make up an increasingly large share of energy prices and it will show up in their heating bills or at the pump as, as they buy fuel for their cars. And of course, this will vary across countries according to how green or, or, or brown right, their energy mix is today. Um, 
so I think uh, these distributional impacts need to be addressed to make the policy package a success, but most importantly, to make the energy transition and climate neutrality a reality. And I think um, negotiations to make this, this policy package a reality uh, you know, will continue, of course, in 2022, but what will really make or break their success will boil down to financial transfers to offset uh, these distributional impacts in a way that's both um, politically and socially acceptable. Um, if we, you know, go, go beyond, I guess, the EU sphere on the international level, um, I guess the second main event uh, that took place this year climate-wise was COP26, so the, the climate conference that took place in Glasgow in November. And this conference really catalyzed huge public attention, a lot more than in previous years. And this was also because, unfortunately, uh, extreme weather events were quite present across Europe over summer from wildfires to floods. And so that certainly increased the pressure from the public on, on leaders. And this contributed, I guess, to, to prompting uh, a lot of announcements and, and pledges. Now, what do these pledges mean? Um, if uh, long-term pledges of net zero emissions are met, that could stop uh, global warming at 1.8 degrees Celsius. Now, that's an improvement with respect to the current scenarios, if you look at current policies that are already in place, but it's not quite meeting the 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, that has been indicated as critical by the IPCC. Um, one other important thing that, uh, that came up at COP26 was I guess, a divide between developed countries and developing ones. And on one front, I think the divide uh, that the divide was visible was the horizon set for decarbonization goals. China and India resisted the pressure to align their climate neutrality horizon to 2050. And they did so uh, arguing that rich countries should do more to solve the climate problem that they have created uh, with their historical emissions, which makes sense uh, in a way. Uh, and, and another, I guess, side of the divide came down to money, really, um, as uh, climate finance contributions uh, that, that were pledged in, in Paris uh, actually came, came short. They were not met. Uh, and that's a bad sign for developing countries that, that need financial support, both for climate mitigation and adaptation, but also to face and to meet and to adapt to the inevitable losses and damages of climate change. So, I guess in 2022, we should expect, you know, at the next round of negotiations, at the next COP, more pressure on, on increasing ambition of, of climate pledges, uh, but also showing concrete policies to meet those pledges, right? Not just setting far in the future uh, goals of emissions reductions and also putting serious money on the table for, for climate finance. And I guess the, the final perhaps point and development I'd like to mention uh, is, is one that's very much still unfolding and that we experience in our energy bills, and that's the energy price spike um, that, that's still uh, going on and has been driven by the price of natural gas. And I think this shows that gas remains at the same time an element of flexibility uh, in the European energy mix, but also liability, right? Because it means that Europe still depends uh, to a large extent on gas imports from Russia, while at the same time, it knows that it needs to get rid of this dependency, uh, both, both of gas and, but as well as, as coal, right? It needs to get rid of fossil fuels if it wants to achieve carbon uh, neutrality. So I think 2022 will bring discussions on how to avoid, I guess, finding ourselves in the same situation again next winter. And that will require being more strategic about gas reserves, redoubling efforts in energy efficiency investment, uh, but also in, in uh, renewable energy, in grid interconnections, in energy storage. And so this shows you how 
you know, how much, I guess, the discussions around energy and climate policy have been interconnected in the past year and, and will certainly continue to do so. Great, thank you. Would that also be your New Year's wish or did you have another one? I guess my New Year's wish is perhaps a bit broader. Um, I hope that in 2022, all EU member states um, will stop focusing only on, on the short-term costs of climate action, you know, the necessary investments that we need to undertake to, you know, to, to build more renewables, to, to renovate buildings, to, to lower our energy bills, and to also recognize the long-term benefits of, of all these. And you know, not only environmental benefits, lower emissions, you know, lower air pollution, but also social and economic benefits. Uh, and also, I think, recognize the risks that delaying or, or minimizing or entirely avoiding climate action would bring. So I guess this, this type of cost-benefit analysis would be my, my wish for the new year. It'd be a great one. Thank you very much, Elisabetta. We've talked rule of law, tech, Brexit, climate and energy. Let's now take a foreign policy turn with Ian Bond and Luigi Scazzieri. So Ian, on transatlantic relations, uh, in January last year, Joe Biden took office as president of the United States. Could you tell us a bit about what Europeans expected of him? Well, they mostly expected that he wouldn't be Donald Trump. But more specifically, they expected that he would be more willing to work with the EU, uh, that he would remove the tariffs that Trump had imposed on European steel and aluminium, uh, that he would work with them on issues like climate change and global health, that he'd be a solid supporter of NATO in a way that Trump never was, uh, and that he would stand up to Russia in a way that Trump never did. So, I mean, if, if I had to summarize, I suppose what I would say is that um, Europeans hoped that Biden would be more European. Big change with the predecessor then. And how have things turned out in the end? Uh, I'd say, uh, I mean, there have certainly been some important advances. Uh, the US rejoined the Paris Climate Change Agreement, uh, played a full part in the COP26 in, in Glasgow. Uh, they rejoined the, the Iran negotiations, which uh, I guess Luigi might talk about. But overall, I'd say things haven't turned out quite as well as the most optimistic European leaders hoped. It took a long time for the administration to remove the tariffs on steel and aluminium. And indeed, they've been left in place on UK exports in an effort to force the UK to abide by the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, Biden, with his Irish roots, very attached to the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and I think perhaps more worryingly going forward, there have been two serious instances where Biden has failed to consult allies. Uh, one being the AUKUS deal, whereby the US and the UK are replacing France in supplying submarines to Australia. That, that's a big deal industrially and in security terms for France, and the French are still pretty unhappy about that, despite subsequent apologies from Biden and his team. And the other area where there was a, a failure to consult was over Ukraine. Biden made some incautious remarks after his telephone conversation with Putin recently, suggesting that he might do a deal with Russia on European security without taking account of Central and Eastern European views. Now, he rode back from that very quickly. But, you know, that's, that's two instances in which it ought to have been pretty obvious that talking to your European allies would be a good thing to do. So I'd say his first year has been a bit of a mixed bag, but still a lot better than Trump. Clear, thank you. Um, same question to you. Do you have a New Year's wish 
for the EU for next year? Well, I was quite tempted to be like the legendary British ambassador in Washington, who was asked what his Christmas wish was and misunderstanding the question, asked for a small box of crystallized fruit and was mortified when uh, the answers were broadcast on radio. And it turned out that his uh, his colleagues had asked for things like world peace and global prosperity. Um, but I'll be a bit more ambitious than that, even though I suspect I'm going to be disappointed and say that I hope that in 2022, Russia will leave its neighbours in peace to decide their own futures without a gun to their heads. Good point. Thank you very much. Luigi, the first piece you wrote this year was about the prospects of reviving the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, but in the end, that didn't happen. Why is that? Well, you're right. So when Biden came to uh, became president, there seemed to as if there would be a decent chance of uh, reviving the deal. Um, the challenge was finding a way to uh, choreograph a return, or, or so it seemed at the time. Um, in the end, talks didn't actually start uh, until April uh, because of uh, Iran electing a new president. Um, in terms of process, the two sides aren't even talking to each other directly because Iran doesn't want to uh, negotiate uh, with the US, so the Europeans have to act as uh, go-betweens. Uh, and in terms of substance, the two sides have remained very, very far apart. Um, Iran wants to keep more of its uh, nuclear program than allowed under the uh, 2015 agreement. It asks for compensation for the sanctions that it has been under. It's asking for guarantees that the US will not reimpose sanctions and other things that are unacceptable uh, or that the US cannot even uh, do, such as providing uh, guarantees that a future president won't reimpose uh, sanctions. And at the same time, Iran has been increasing its, uh, its enrichment, uh, its nuclear enrichment activities and restricting the ability of the International Atomic Energy Agency to, uh, to monitor its program. So all this means that there are now big concerns in the US in, uh, amongst the European members of the, of the JCPOA, so France, Germany, and the UK, that Iran isn't serious about uh, negotiating and reviving the agreement. All right. And what, what do you think we can expect then from next year? Will it be more of the same? I think the situation is, is quite likely to worsen. Um, so assuming that there is no deal this year, which is looking extremely unlikely at the moment, then we're going to see a lot of turbulence uh, next year. The talks would at some stage uh, halt or perhaps come to an end. I think the EU would be very likely to reimpose its own sanctions regime. Iran would continue to um, develop its nuclear program and to inch closer to uh, nuclear weapons capability. It might not actually make the decision to acquire a nuclear weapon, but it would like to have the ability to do so at extremely short notice. And at the same time, the US would take a much stronger stance, both in enforcing existing sanctions, but also imposing new sanctions. And it will want to show that it is willing to use force, ultimately, to stop uh, Iran from uh, acquiring a nuclear weapon. Of course, the US, together with Israel, which is the other main country that's really, really worried about uh, Iran developing a nuclear weapon, would be cautious, ultimately, about using force because Iran would retaliate uh, via its proxies in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, uh, in Lebanon. Um, so, you know, this, this is a scenario that hopefully won't uh, come to pass, but 
the more the parties are negotiating through pressure, essentially, rather than through talks, the more we're going to be in a very unstable and dangerous situation. And in a sense, more dangerous than the one we were in in, uh, in 2019 and 2020 because of the Iranian nuclear program being so much more advanced. So we, uh, we would be in a, in a highly unstable situation that uh, could have you know, very negative consequences for regional security. Thank you. What would be your wish for 2022? So I'm going to take a slightly different take from, from at least what Ian said and put it on a rather more personal level, perhaps, which is that, um, you know, I think also one of the EU's most visible advantages has been the erosion of internal boundaries, the elimination of internal boundaries, at least through the Schengen area and therefore the ability for citizens to travel seamlessly across. And that's something that has been undermined due to the migration crisis of 2015, after which lots of states had, uh, some states have actually even maintained uh, restrictions, uh, such as Sweden, um, and then COVID, obviously. So I hope that member states can find a coordinated approach to, uh, to handling the pandemic, at least, but also uh, they can uh, address uh, earlier, earlier issues and we can uh, look forward to open borders within Europe. Thank you, and I follow you very much on that. After our foreign policy focus, let us now bring it back closer to home with Christian Odendahl. Christian, one of the big political events this year was the German federal elections at the end of September, which brought Olaf Scholz and a new coalition of the Social Democrats, the Greens and the Free Democrats to power. Now that this government has been sworn in, what's in store in terms of economic policy in Europe? So the German election, I think, was a bit more interesting than usual uh, because Angela Merkel was stepping down and, and voters m made an interesting choice in a way. They, they opted for continuity in terms of style and leadership. Um, Olaf Scholz is, you know, in terms of his character, uh, probably closest to, to, to Merkel. And the Germans were mostly looking for a replacement for Angela Merkel. But also the voters um, elected sort of parties with relatively progressive uh, policy platforms and the agreement that these three parties have um, have struck is is good, is ambitious on the modernization of the German economy, on climate change, and so forth. So, an economic policy in in Europe, um, I think the first item is the recovery fund um, and its implementation. I think that will be high on the agenda, and and Germany will continue to have a strong inter interest in in making that fund a success. Um, we have a very ambitious German government on climate change which will boost the climate efforts of the European Commission, Fit for 55 package and so forth. Um, the coalition co agreement actually, you know, very explicitly contains a strong commitment to backing the European effort. Um, and the relevant dossiers for negotiating that are in the hands of the Greens uh, in Germany. So I think the European Commission can count on a, on a relatively strong partner in the new government when it comes to its climate policy. And the new government has provided an example of how to deal with fiscal rules that very few still think are sensible, right? Germany's fiscal rules are very strict on paper, but they can be circumvented if need be. And the new government um, and its coalition agreement clearly points in the direction of circumventing the debt break, um, as we call it, to make room for the necessary investment in the modernization of the economy and the investment in climate change. In fact, this new German government shows one of the cheekiest ways possible to circumvent the debt break. Um, 
by just relabeling COVID emergency money, of which Germany had a lot left over, um, and put this into a climate and transformation fund that can be drawn upon over the next couple of years. So that sets, first of all, it changes Germany's fiscal policy, right? It's much more investment heavy and, and it creates room for, for, the, for the years after this pandemic. But it also sets a strong example and we will have to talk about the fiscal rules in Europe and how we want to how we want to continue with with uh, with reforming them. And so the German example is set, um, and I think this will also impact the uh, the discussion that we will have in Europe. Because if Germany uses such a cheeky way to circumvent its own fiscal rules, that is almost a political invitation to other countries uh, to do the same. All right, I see. Thank you. Uh, is your New Year's wish related to this? Yeah, it is. I, I, I hope that uh, policymakers from Germany show the same kind of ambition on modernizing and, and on climate change that they have shown domestically now in this agreement, that they show the same level of ambition on, in, in Europe too. And because the, the challenges that we face in Europe um, are similar to those domestically, right? And the recovery fund, I think, is a great example of how this ambition can work also politically. Right, so 2022 is the chance to show that on other issues like fiscal rule reform, for example. Great, thank you very much. Well, let me now turn to a very, very last expert is CER director Charles Grant. Uh, so Charles, let's discuss France, which has been gaining an influence in the EU. Uh, why is that? <clears throat> I think France has become the most influential country in the EU by quite some measure in the last year or two. For a number of reasons. Firstly, so I could talk about the so-called structural factors. Obviously, Britain has left the EU and Britain used to counter French influence. Germany has been very distracted by its elections and the slow and complicated formation of a new government, as Christian has said. And Macron himself is always is brimming with ideas on what the EU needs to do. And the EU system feeds off ideas. So those are the structural factors. Then there is just the fact that he's positioned key people in the right positions for French influence. Mrs. von der Leyen and Mr. Michel, the presidents of the Commission and the Council, respectively, are both French protégés and some of the key officials in Brussels, like Thierry Breton, Olivier Gerson, also French. So the, the French have the right people in place to promote their ideas. But more important than that, the third factor is the world has changed in ways that make the French view of everything seem more relevant than it used to because of the COVID-19 crisis, because of the rise of China and the unacceptable behavior as seen by Europeans and Chinese companies in many respects. Everybody thinks that we need to um, onshore supply chains, make the supply chains more resilient, have new sorts of industrial policies so that we make some microchips and batteries in Europe. We believe in European champions now. We believe in more reciprocity on public procurement, state aid, and so on. So these are French concerns that other other countries which used to be regarded as North European free trading liberals, the Dutch and the Danes, for example, amongst others, now go along with the Europeans, at least, if not the whole world, has a more French view on things. So as a result, we have a very French-influenced EU. Okay, how will this translate in EU policy concretely in 2022? Well, I'm assuming that Mr. Macron will be re-elected. That's far from certain. But assuming he's re-elected, uh, France will remain very influential, and that means There'll be no enlargement of the European Union or no, no movements towards it. It means there'll be no free trade agreements. So every single FTA that the EU is negotiating is blocked by France at the moment. And it means that French priorities will be pushed when the French hold their presidency in the first half of the year. So the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, the, reg the regulation of big tech are French priorities. So is the carbon border adjustment mechanism to prevent carbon leakage. 
So is the idea of open strategic autonomy, which in terms of defence means pushing European defence further ahead. And so the reform of the fiscal rules at European level that Christian was talking about. And also, I might add, a hard line on Brexit. If the, if the British want to compromise, the, the EU can only compromise with the British. If the French really are happy to compromise because they are the hardest of the 27 on Brexit. Thank you, Charles. Do you have a, a wish for the EU in 2022? My wish, Megan, is that British leaders in dealing with Brexit adopt a new attitude, a more constructive attitude. That would help the European leaders who are a bit hardline to be more constructive as well. We need a change of attitude, a change of mentalities. In practical terms, That means softening the hard edges of the trade and cooperation agreement, perhaps doing a deal on plant and animal health, a deal on mobility and working out structures for cooperating in foreign and defence policy. I mean, the, the, big, the big wish really that that leads to is I just hope that the Europeans and the British can work out ways of working together constructively to, to strengthen the West because that's what needs to happen. Okay, thank you. Very big wishes from everybody. I think we can make it work. So if I, if I look at this overview, it does not seem as if 2022 will be any calmer than 2021 has been. Um, but I hope that the CER experts have given our listeners a sense of what has happened this year and helped us get best prepared for in the next. So the only thing left to do for me is to thank all the CER experts very much for their contributions and to wish our listeners a good end of year. See you in 2022. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.